Welcome to Anthropology of Girlhood, a girlhood podcast about scaring your children into never doing anything. I'm Alexa Ray Hack. I'm a comedian and storyteller. I use she, her pronouns. I'm Micah Silver, and I'm a childcare provider, and I use they, them pronouns. Today, we're watching and reviewing 10 Things I Hate About You, a classic 90s rom-com slash retelling of Taming of the Shrew. One of my ultimate favorite movies. Uh, It's been on my, it's like my go-to comfort movie. And it's so good. For the soundtrack alone, I feel like this movie is a hit. And I think as Seattleites, like it is, it is necessary for us to watch this movie just for all the Seattle stuff. Oh, absolutely. If you have not seen this movie, what is wrong with Run, you? Run, don't walk. It's streaming for free on Amazon Prime. It is a must see. It pretty. It holds up pretty okay. Yeah, yeah. It's got some holes in it, but we'll get into that later. So, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, the the plot is as such. Cameron James is a new student at Padua High School in the Seattle area. He is. He immediately falls in love with Bianca Stratford, who has an overbearing father who doesn't allow her or her sister to date. They convince him to let Bianca date if Cat does. So Cameron comes up with a cockamamie scheme to pay someone to take Cat out, so that Bianca can also date. And then rom-com hijinks ensue, and everyone goes to the prom at the end. Follow us on Twitter at Anthro267. Subscribe to our Patreon. It is now up and open. We are going to have some bonus content coming your way. There's going to be a Discord up there. And then starting in... Next month. Starting next month, there's going to be bonus episodes that go up only on the Patreon. So we got to get on that. Pretty light episode this time. A lot of talk about sex, but that's about it. Uh, Thanks for listening, y'all. Enjoy. Enjoy. probably a teenager when i first saw it okay um that makes sense that's the right the right time yeah i i feel like i saw it at a sleepover i mention it because like the thing there's a moment in this movie where heath ledger is first hitting on a cat she sarcastically says i want you i need you oh baby oh baby and that lived in my middle school, rent-free. Like, every, <laughs> it, on the lips of every 14-year-old, any time, like, any time uh, a boy did anything, basically. Oh, baby, oh, baby. I want you, I need you. Oh, baby, oh, baby. I, and, and as soon as it came up in the movie, I had this, like, sense memory where I was like, I'm back in middle school. <laughs> oh, oh, no! no! Yeah, and I didn't even realize, like, I think it didn't even register to me then that that was a reference to something, you know, when you're a kid. Yeah. You just, just sort of absorb stuff. Uh, yeah, anyway, it was weird. Yeah, I'm, a, like, I'm a little young for this movie to have, like, the cultural impact that it did. Because um, I was a wee bab in 1999. Right, yeah. You, um, <laughs> you were not even in school in I 1999. Was, nope. I, I was still in preschool. Uh, but I feel like this is one of my friend's favorite movies. And I saw it at a sleepover. And, like... I feel like... It, sleepover is a real undercurrent of this podcast. It really is. A lot of my friends didn't like rom-coms so i had to do a lot of like seeing them by myself because you know we were against the mainstream sure but uh 
we were just neurodivergent queers who didn't know any better. Right. Uh, but yeah, when I this movie has resonated with me from like the first time I saw it and has been like one of my favorite For movies. For sure, yeah. Of all time. Uh, it's definitely still one of my comfort movies. I think, yeah, and I watching it now after living in Seattle for the last five years, it's so quintessentially Seattle. It's so Seattle, and it's so funny because I was reading a bunch of articles about this, as I do, as is my way when we make the show, and almost to a one, they say that this movie is set in Tacoma, which is an easy enough thing because the high school is in Tacoma, right? and the house where the Stratfords are supposed to live is a real house in Tacoma. Right. But the establishing shot is from Queen Anne. I literally, when we were watching this movie, I was like, I have smoked weed in that park <laughs> where the opening shot of this movie, where the, like, uh, establishing shot of this of this movie is. Um, yeah. And so I know exactly where where it's supposed to take place. Yeah. It's not fucking Tacoma. No, I like I mean, I feel like this was so quintessentially us also like when we were watching together stopping the movie and trying to like uh figure out where that one <laughs> shot out of the bridge. Exactly. Yeah, cuz there's a shot where they're crossing a bridge and it's before they're at the Fremont Troll and instead of watching 5 more seconds and realizing they were going to Fremont and that was the Fremont Bridge, we both just paused it and we're like dissecting for like a full 5 minutes like Okay, well, you can see this, so it's got to be this part, and we're definitely looking south. Okay, so it's got to... It was... It's <laughs> it was... so fucking stupid. But it is fun. Like, I mean, I grew up in a nowhere place. Right. So it is exciting to be like, I live there! That's my. That's the place that I live! Right. Because, like, I, I... No one has even heard of the place that I'm from, much less would depict it on screen. Right. Even, like, I'm from a bigger city, and, like, even that, like... We've gotten, I don't think like, I've ever seen a movie set in Madison, Wisconsin. No, you've got a couple Criminal Minds episodes that are like have one establishing shot. <laughs> right, right. But like, I think the closest, yeah, there might everyone be... Everyone always goes to Chicago or Minneapolis. There might be one of those that takes place in like a Green Bay or, right? or an Appleton, which oh. is probably as close as you're going to get to me. <laughs> yeah. I love how, especially since it's a 90s movie, how, like, grungy it is and how, like, so in the Seattle 90s culture it is. And it's really fun to look at it and be, like, one, not see a single fucking crane in the skyline. There's, There's one. The opening shot, there's a single crane. And I was like, no, 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 this can't be Seattle. <laughs> There's not nearly enough cranes. Uh, it's pre-Amazon Seattle, right? Yeah, 99 for sure. That's the Seattle I wanted to move to. Yeah, right? Yeah. When it still sucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, before right. before uh, Tech Bros fucking ruined it. Maybe if this movie's set in Tacoma, maybe Club Skunk is actually in Tacoma and we just have to go south maybe that's, and go find that's it. that's why we've never, there's no... If there was a goddamn lesbian club, I would be there right. all the time. <laughs> right? Yeah, I was like, this place cannot exist. We do not have a lesbian club this cool. <laughs> I've been to all our lesbian <laughs> bars. They are not this cool. No shade to the Wild Rose. No. So you're a perfectly fine bar. I, it's you're a good a perfectly dive bar. respectable dive bar. The quintessential experience that we're missing in Seattle nowadays is, like, a trans queer bar and not, yeah, yeah. like... Man, I would... If we can hook that up, if we can get... Like, because 
cis gay men, they have their own bars. They've got a couple. They, I mean, that's most of the gay bars. Right. Uh, we have the the one. If we could get a trans bar going, I would go there all the time. Y'all. I, I'm a person who likes to have a home bar. I will make the gay bar my home bar if it's all trans people. Tourists have more queer bars than trans people do. Like, think about it. We've got the unicorn and queer bar and... Okay, Unicorn is like half a tourist bar and half like an, a real actual cool bar. More hot takes on Seattle bar scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah, listen to our other podcast that's literally just about bars. It's called Bar Talk. Actually, should we make that show? I feel like that would be a good bonus episode. Because I feel like I could do 100 episodes worth of a podcast about bars. <laughs> Oh, as, a, as a Wisconsinite and alcoholic, I can make this show. I think you just want excuses to go to different bars. That's not the point here. That's not what this is about. This movie has another one of those, like, classic, like, um, chaperone nerd friends that we've talked about before. Like, we need this, like... Maybe neurotypical people don't need this. Every neurodivergent person needs a Michael. We need a chaperone. I need someone, because I was thinking about this the other day while I was at work, because I just started a new job recently. And I was thinking about this thing where I was like, when I start a new job, I need someone to explain to me all of the rules. Like, not just the rules, but like the unspoken rules Uh and which rules I can break and like, because I'm not going to intuit that stuff. No. It's, it's just not going to come to me. That's not how my brain works. I need you to tell me all that stuff. I need you to tell me what table I can't sit at because that's not going to occur to me. I'm just going to see someone at this table that I have a common interest with and I'm going to go sit at their table not realizing that I'm not part of that clique. Yeah. Would high school would have been so much easier for me if I had a Michael who would have gone through and been like, this is this person, this people do this. <laughs> yeah. And like, who has the time and the know-how to just give you those unspoken rules because so much of like navigating social situations are like unspoken rules that as a neurodivergent person, they're really hard to pick up on. Right, right. And like... Regardless of what your neurodivergence no. is, like... It makes it isolating and it makes it harder to understand other people. Yeah, I'm also starting a new job. And although it's a lot more queer, which is really nice, it's a lot more neurotypical. And I keep making ADHD jokes because I'm used to working with, like, all of my neurodivergent people at my other job. And, like, no one understands. And I feel like... <laughs> Everybody's I'm, just, like, worried about you. I know. I'm like, I made a joke about reminders today because someone told me to write a post-it note to remember something. And I'm like, that shit doesn't work with me. Unless you can put the post-it note on the inside of my glasses. Right? That's the only way that it works. Do you know how many post-it notes are around my room? <laughs> Too many. Every single time I am honest with someone when they're like, hey, what's going on? It, it inevitably ends up with pity that i don't want right right because it's like you asked and this is not even a hard day for me like this is a regular ass day um and you are nearly in tears and i did not need this energy i was having a perfectly regular day being a person who is sad all the time or whatever i just need you to go that's rough buddy i just need (laughs) you to say that's rough buddy and then leave me the fuck alone (laughs) right yeah, I I think Michael as a That's character. Rough, buddy. <laughs> Sorry, Avatar reference. Every time I can get 
Yeah, I think as much as I get frustrated with these sidekick characters, I think this one in particular, I really enjoy. Maybe it's because he's coded as Jewish. And yeah. uh, I mean, most of them are, let's be real. But I think... We'll talk about it in our other podcast where we just break down anti-Semitism. <laughs> but I think Michael's character is really well developed and like he can stand on his own, which not a lot of sidekicks can. Honestly, the character development in this movie is incredible. It's really good. And like everyone has like a unique style that speaks to them, uh, a unique soundtrack. And sure. like, it's really cool to see that sidekick character like have an arc of his own. Yeah, he has interests, he has wants, like he he even gets a girl in the right. end. Like it's awesome. And maybe it's because this is based off of Shakespeare where like side characters have their own stories in right. a lot of Shakespearean yeah. work, but it was just refreshing. This whole movie is just like a really nice refreshing yeah. kind of blow. We have to establish that this movie is like fundamentally about the toxic trope of men having ownership over women's vaginas. Like, Absolutely. It's super gross and like i get that in the shakespeare play it's more gross right i haven't read taming the shrew in a long okay, time so, so i didn't take uh, high school literature it was just a gap in my knowledge so i didn't read any shakespeare i've never read the taming of the shrew but i sure did read a bunch of articles about this movie <laughs> <laughs> Man, if that ain't the ADHD story. Well, I didn't do my schoolwork, but I sure did read a bunch of articles about this movie. <laughs> and yeah, so it's similar, although the play is like more misogynistic. Right. And, they, and the cat character, you know, does end up sort of bowing and demurring to uh -huh. her husband in the, her like yeah. love interest in the end. Um, and that was sort of explicitly what they wanted to invert the female writers of this movie. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it's telling that this movie is written by women. Yeah. If you want to see a more misogynistic take on this movie, uh, one of my all time favorite musicals of all time is kiss me, Kate. And that's oh, the taming of the shrew. Yeah. That's a really fun one. Um, and I haven't seen it in ages, but the music slaps, but yeah, I think like, <sighs> all right, here's my first rant for the podcast. I think they did a really interesting job and a really good job about having cat being aware and calling out the ownership that men have over her especially her dad that like total takedown of her calling him out of like not being able to control his own life so she, he's controlling hers yeah was really refreshing to see but i think also that this movie did a really good job of showing the perils of overprotective parenting yeah I think in the high school world, Kat does a really good job of standing on her own and like not letting men hold power over her. Maybe Mr. Morgan is the only other one, but I have another rant about that. But the whole idea of sheltering your children and like holding them into this tiny little box so you can control them right. is so fucking toxic yeah. and it's so gross it's so gross and like the obsession that uh strafford has around his children's sex life is disgusting it's disgusting because like first to alight over a thing that we've already talked about like 
when you shelter your kids from stuff, you just deny yourself an opportunity to parent your kids. Absolutely. Like you're just you're just saying, I don't want to parent you through this. I want you to go through this on your own, and that's fucking evil, frankly. Yeah. And also, like, you know, it falls in it's it's because of this like toxic misogyny of like, I know that I don't respect women and I treat them like objects. So I can't have people that I feel strongly about be treated like objects. And instead of confronting my own misogyny and addressing the misogyny in the world around me, I'm just going to wall it up so I don't have to think about it. Yeah. When you are overbearing as a parent, two things happen. Usually one or the other, but in a lot of cases, both. One, your kids learn how to lie to you really fucking well. Right, because they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. Their support system is taken away from them. They are taught that they cannot trust other people with being vulnerable. Yeah. And they are left to face the world by themselves. Secondly, when they do face that world, they have no clue how to handle it. Right, because they don't have the support structure. No, and... A lot of us who did grow up with overbearing parents dove headfirst into life way too fast because we were trying to make up for lost time. Right. And I, you see that really well with Bianca, I think, where she's, like, obsessed with, like, dating and getting a boyfriend and, like... To the do- point where she doesn't really think critically about it. She kind of just dives in to get her feet wet. Right. She just wants to date a boy because he's pretty. He does. Right. She doesn't think about his personality right. until it's too late. Well, and she wants to do it because she hasn't been allowed. Right. Right? Because it's forbidden fruit. So at that point, it doesn't matter what the fruit tastes like. It's just the fact that it's forbidden. Right. Children will get into shit. That is how you learn... That's how you you learn to exist. Yeah. Learning how to be a human is an experiential opportunity. Like, there is no other way to do it. Yeah. You can read about it all you want. read it in a book. Yeah. I think that Mr. Strafford, I'm going to call him Mr. Stanford at some point. I can just feel it. (laughs) Um, Mr. Strafford is just like perfect peak Seattle dad in like a really interesting way because on top of this overprotective helicopter parent thing that you have going on you also have him vilifying a 15 year old child who's going through the trauma of childbirth to further trap and manipulate his children to protect their virginity and their special interest and all of that which is when like if you really cared about women's health and like women's independence you would give money to planned parenthood right like you would lobby con like you'd lobby congress to to keep abortion legal like you would teach sex ed you teach your sex ed right and not just again another great point of abstinence only does not work right because kids just do it anyway and then they're not prepared when they do right because the only thing you've taught them is not to do it and again they can't trust you to help them process what they have gone through right because you've told them that you're not going to be there for them yeah mr trafford is a incredibly written villain and i think is a really interesting lens to put on to teenage girls but again i think it's something that like are we hurting people by giving this point of view again or does it really need to be seen? Because, like, there isn't really a resolution to how he's treating them and it's just, like, he grows a little and lets Kat go to the university that she wants. But, yeah. like, that's letting her go. That's not facing that's not his inner... That's not dealing mis- his own, with his own shit, yeah. right? It feels like this movie... It, 
this movie would feel a lot better if there were more obvious takedowns yeah of him or if he ended up addressing his own misogyny and having a real conversation with his daughters at the end of this movie but none of that happens and there's nothing to lead us to believe that he's changed in any way we just know that his children have overcome him yes because he's like you said a villain i think that's an interesting way i'd never thought i'd always sort of pictured him in my head as more of like a speed bump uh-huh uh you know yeah, a, yeah. a hazard right to the plot than a villain but he truly is the movie doesn't exist without his schemes right and like without him everybody's just having a great time without him the girls are allowed to do what they want to and have an autonomy to grow as people but for you screenwriters out there, this is an interesting, like, look into, like, how a villain can be interesting and have interesting motivations that don't seem evil. Right. Right? Like, he doesn't, it didn't occur to me that he was the villain because he's, you know, he's not steepling his fingers or cackling at any point. Like, like he's not a bad guy. He just has bad motivations. Yeah. He just is coming from a bad place and he's reasoned himself into a bad place because he's working from bad logic. Right. It really illustrates clearly the damage that good intentions can do when you don't think them through or look at them from other perspectives than your own. Exactly, exactly. And it's this kind of like patronizing masculinity that's like, it is comes from a good place but again it's working from bad logic right like women can't do things on their own that they need support that they need to be put on a pedestal and we don't like we're perfectly capable you just need to trust us to fuck up like everybody else does right and like i understand like i'm not a parent so i don't understand watching your kid fuck up and how hard that is yeah but you have to let your kid fuck up right and like Again, you are just taking the opportunity to not parent your child. Right. And if you don't want to parent your child, don't have don't children. Have, don't have children. It's so, it is 100% easier not to have children than to have them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to paraphrase a John Mulaney bit, it is 100% easier not to have children. <laughs> But talking about villains in this movie, can we talk about the Joey Donner of it all? Yeah. Because, one, one thing that I appreciate so much about these movies that we watch is you can really identify the villains easily because they look the most punchable. And, <laughs> he like, does have a very punchable he, oh, face. He reeks of privilege, and it just, like... Well, this whole movie kind of yes. does, but, yeah. Yeah, it does. Him like, in particular. Him in particular just, like, reeks. And, like, <laughs> he just reminds me of, like, the swimmers and the jocks in my high school who were just, like, so full of themselves and thought they were the hottest shit. Yeah. And he just encapsulates that, like, teenage audacity right. in such an interesting way. Right. He and has the confidence of someone who's never struggled right yeah and i think it's really interesting to see that i really i love the exchanges between him and cat because it's just like every 
like fantasy of putting down male privilege that I possibly could have. And she does the writing is so good and so succinct. And it's just Yeah, Kat's a real like amazing character to have if you are 13. You're like if you're a uh, teen girl and you see this movie, like that's pretty fucking eye-opening to have a character like that who is like speaks her mind and stands up for herself and like does shit that she likes even though it makes her unpopular like right in a world full of biancas having a cat to be like shit i can do that i can do that yeah is really amazing and i think let's be real my crush on julia styles definitely helped she is so good good in this movie she's so good that mixed with all the riot girl music I, i was a goner watching her and heath ledger together it's like it's magic. It's the bisexual it's dream. so good. I mean, and Heath Ledger is so handsome, and he just, like, sweats charisma. Yeah. Like, the second he's on screen, you're just like, oh, I, I love you. I'm gay, but I love you. <laughs> he is a very pretty boy. <laughs> he's also my type, which is, like, which is, like, dirty. Yeah. <laughs> smokes uh doesn't give a shit that's that's my type um oh talking about privilege i really adore their english teacher mr morgan because he takes that like first scene with him he calls out cat on her own privilege yeah and is just like so on top of it and especially with the fucking white rasta bullshit that this oh movie my God, yeah. did not need to be a runner like yeah why and that's another thing like you need to slap it down harder if you're gonna bring something like white rastas up you need to slap it down harder right it doesn't need to be a throwaway line of i don't have time for this right which it pretty much is and then to like continually bring them up also was like well like a podcast that we really look up to i hate it but i love it says this thing all the time we're like bringing up a thing sarcastically is still bringing it up yeah you're still talking about it you're still putting light on the situation. And if you're not putting light on the situation to make it better or to show how ridiculous it is, then shut the fuck up about it. Yeah. Then, like, pick better targets. Yeah. Because you're just, like, glorifying a racist thing. Yeah. Which is, like, white people stealing black people's culture. It is very Seattle. Yeah, it was very Seattle for white people to steal black culture. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, also... This school cannot be in Seattle because it is diverse. Like, yeah. I have... N- there is more people of color in this school than there is on Capitol Hill right now. And it is weirds me out. Yeah. The fact that Seattle is very white, not the diversity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the one thing I don't like about Mr. Morgan, to go back to that and not get off on a thousand tangents. Oh, yeah. Don't interrupt the child's learning because you get mad at them. Yeah. Like... This is a big thing, and this is going to come up more, I'm sure. Absolutely. Like, don't punish teenagers for being sassy. That's their job. Push boundaries. Learn where those boundaries are. If you don't like teenagers talking back to you, don't teach high school. Right. Teach elementary school kids. They don't push back like that. They... Okay, I'm not... Don't give me that face. I'm not saying they don't push back. I just rolled my eyes so big. (laughs) I'm sorry. Your eyes roll all the way back into your head. No, they push back differently. Differently. They do. And, like, 
sending Kat to the principal's office or whatever after she doesn't fight him on an assignment because he thinks she's messing with him is such bullshit. Yeah. And, like, the whole design of detention is bullshit and you should never punish children and take away their learning opportunities to make yourself feel more powerful. Yeah. But... Yeah, that's my point. But again, like, we've talked about this before, like, school is not designed for teaching kids. It's designed to prepare them to be obedient at their factory job, which is exactly why detention exists. Yeah, we need to read, we need to not. We need to destroy and rebuild the American education system because it's fucking gross. It's terrible. Anyway, we should, this, we got off on a weird... (laughs) This podcast always goes off in weird directions. I want to stop down really fast to talk about the, like, production movie side of all of this. Because, like we said, this movie is written by um, a duo of of female writers, um, Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith. They wrote this movie. I read in an article that they wrote drafts of this movie by snail mail they lived in like new york and denver and they wrote and mailed back and forth drafts of this fucking movie that is incredible i I love it i was like oh yeah i guess that's a thing you must have had to do in the 90s the days before like faxing was ubiquitous and like and, you know, emails and stuff right. like that. Oh, boy. Yeah. Wild. Having to retype all of that shit because you can't just, like, edit the document. Right. Oh, God. Um, and also, um, the director, Gil Younger, is, um, this is his debut th- uh, theatrical release. He's a TV director. Is it really? Yeah. Um, this it, movie has so many good productions. Well, yeah, stuff. that's exactly like he's got some chops from directing TV. His like CV of TV directing is like he's been everywhere. Blossom, two guys, a girl in a pizza place, according to Jim. Uh, yeah. Wow. That is quite a CV. He, he's all over the place anyway. But yeah, he, he's got a real good um style here like i like this movie i mean it doesn't really have much like cinematic style to it except that it has that thing that sometimes tv directors do in movies where it's everything's lit kind of flat yeah because that's how you shoot tv because it's faster right um and it it doesn't look weird because high school movies kind of also have a lot of that like kind of sitcom shooting but you definitely know knowing that he's a TV director makes it make a lot of Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. There is that one shot where um, Michael and Cameron throw the flyers down the stairs. Right. And, and we you do have the this, like spinning upward shot of these flyers flying down and it is chef's kiss. It's like, beautiful. Oh, it is so stunning. And like, so perfect. Like the music behind that shot and the music behind all of this right. is so so good and, and we were we were talking about what kind of like spinning gimbal they had the right the camera on to do that perfect beautiful little spiral i always want to know what equipment i know <laughs> we're such nerds we're always like i wonder what camera they're using on there what's that lens they got 
Um, we also like this movie kind of expands on your thesis from Dirty Dancing mm-hmm. about how you can track a character's growth based on their outfit. Yeah. Um, and this movie does a pretty good job of like establishing who all the characters are based on their outfits. Yeah. Like as soon as we see Cat and Heath Ledger and like Bianca, like we know who those characters are immediately because we see them. And I did this with Micah when Bianca came on screen. I paused it and I was like, here's five things we know about Bianca just because of what she's wearing. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. But um yeah, it's just interesting because like she is kind of the only one that has any development throughout the movie like her outfits get a little more personality a little more personality i i said that because in the opening shot when she walks in she's wearing like this tiny white with like pink flowers uh like baby doll dress Mm -hmm. and i I was like who wears a baby doll dress to high school like that feels weird no i don't even know anyone who's like Worn an unaccompanied baby doll dress. Right? Ever? But it's the 90s. Oh, it's not quite the 2000s. I was going to say, you could put some jeans on underneath it. Right. If it was 2001, you could put jeans on underneath this baby doll dress. (laughs) (laughs) Or if it's now, you would put a a biker jacket over it or a A pair of leggings or or... yeah, sweat, something. Yeah. It's just it's just bad. And but it's it does fully just scream like I'm a virgin. Yeah. Like it's just meant to say virgin alert. <laughs> like that's what its point is. It really is. I and like even I feel like with Kat you have a little bit of that like as she softens up a little bit she starts getting a little bit more femmy and like that's true yeah uh like her big vulnerable moment is at prom and she's like in a full gown and like yeah she has makeup and her hair's up in a really complicated way and i think it's really interesting to see and same with heath ledger like he's in a suit and you have this like moment of them calling it out on each other which is really adorable yeah but also like they're both being very vulnerable at that moment because this is so outside of their comfort zone and who yeah. they are and i think that's really interesting also the fashion alone in this movie is yeah so 90s so 90s. so it's like but it's essential funny because, 90s. because it really is 90s and so much of what i have internalized as late 90s fashion is actually early 2000s yeah, fashion. Same. It's the like 2001 to 2003, yeah. The like we were talking about, the tiny dresses with the jeans underneath. And the, the Ashley Tisdales of it all. The tops that were never long enough and the super low-rise jeans. Like there's some of that in this movie. This is like peak grunge, especially in Seattle. And like before you have the obsession with like eating disorder thin showing off all of your body yeah although we get a little of that from cat yeah who's like never wearing a full shirt at any point in this whole movie that's true to show us how much we can of her hip bones we can see yeah yeah it's, it's a little unsettling it is i this is this is nothing but um the the where are you gonna take me the Seven Eleven on broadway <laughs> such a good dig 
if you live in Seattle now, you'd be like, but Broadway is fine. Broadway is nice now, but it's, it was not, it has not historically been a nice place. <laughs> no. The, like, there are so many good throwaway lines like that, and I love it, because there's also when Cameron and Bianca are up at the troll, and uh, he asks Bianca if Kat likes girls, and her response is, <laughs> no, no, she's, she's not, not a Katie, Katie Lang, Lang fan. fan. <laughs> fucking gets me every time that flew right by me until micah was like you know a katie lang fan and i was like oh see this is another more like me missing context <laughs> thing <laughs> as someone who's a katie lang fan i just <laughs> well, the bi- i'm the biggest katie lang fan <laughs> but yeah and like there's also like little like bits like with Allison Janney, uh the oh, guidance Allison counselor. Allison Janney, I can't believe we haven't mentioned Allison Janney as the the smut writing guidance counselor. Miss Perky, which is just fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because like this movie is months before the West Wing. <laughs> like imagine Miss like going from Miss Perky to her character on, on the West Wing. <laughs> I feel like what a transition! Oh, talk about same clothes, similar clothes, totally different approach. Right? I her like calling her students little shitheads and yeah, like like, swearing at people. Her little like jabs with Heath Ledger when he comes in to see her are just like so good, and like this is the quippiness of the script is amazing. It's really good funny that they they punched up the whole thing by fucking snail mail <laughs> i love it and yeah i think it's funny because one of the things we like to talk about in these movies is like what is this movie's conception of femininity yeah and the alice and janney of it all really throws a a whole like monkey wrench into the reading of femininity in this movie and i think it really is a testament to like how complex a female character and female identities can be when they're written by women. Like, this is not a revolutionary concept that women are better at depicting ourselves than men are at it depicting us. But uh, it's so rare that we have to call it out. Because, yeah, I, I can't think of, like... The thing that central is central to the women in these in this movie is that... They know what they want, and they don't let shit get in their way about it. Absolutely. Which is fucking awesome. It's so cool. (laughs) It is. Because, like, it doesn't, not, not all of them are feminine, not, they're not sweet, they're not demure, like, Bianca is basically the only girl who is like that, and we're, it's played for a bit. Yeah. Something that I love about this movie and its depiction of femininity is how you see women learning from each other, like with Kat and Bianca. Like, you don't usually get a cooperative relationship when you have that kind of dichotomy between femininity. Women have to always be fighting. Right. And so you have Kat teaching Bianca how to stand up for herself and to go after what she wants and to have some grit. And you have Bianca teaching Kat how to soften up and to let people in and to maybe care a little bit about what other people think. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it's just like, it's such a beautiful balance and like also such a beautiful sibling depiction that like you don't always see. And especially when you have this like 
popular versus unpopular sibling, it always is a cause for a fight. And to, like, yeah. have that turned around is so it's, lovely. It's really beautiful. Uh, yeah, especially given how many how many toxic sibling relationships I know we have coming up because I worked on the schedule today. Talking about the writing in this movie, I still feel like we are missing a part of the script or like a something is missing near the last third of the movie uh-huh. because why is Kat mad at Patrick? She He doesn't kiss her when she's blackout drunk and has a concussion. Oh, yeah. And then so... she's just like mad at him, like to the point of wanting to do him harm. Right. Okay. So I think to talk about that, we have to back up a tiny bit. Surprise party at this dude's house. Right. Um, that's what the the posters start swirling down the staircase were all about. Bianca and Kat both go. Kat gets like hammered, sloppy drunk, and starts dancing on a table, and then ends up hitting her head and getting sick. And Heath Ledger basically like takes care of her and takes her home in her car. Yeah, which very sweet by the way. He has to fucking walk it. Oh, he has to. Get walk home his ass somehow. Back now, because he drove your car home like a fucking gentleman. And then, yeah, all of a sudden, like, she's mad at him the next day. And it does. It feels like a scene got cut. Right. Because literally, we go from she tries to kiss him because she's thankful of his efforts and she's drunk. He realizes that this is in an inappropriate situation and puts the brakes on it and says as much. And suddenly she's furious. And we're supposed to understand Kat to be like a strong, independent woman. Like, the fact that she's seemingly devastated to the point of wanting to do this man harm because he wouldn't kiss her while she was blackout drunk and concussed? Yeah. Like, that... Either there's a scene missing or this the writing of this movie is that or that's a, a major hole. In the right. Of this like movie. I get it, your drunk ego being hurt and like but being then you mad wake the up moment, the next but... morning and you go fucking idiot, you were so drunk. I'm so glad he didn't kiss me. Right, like what a gentleman. What a, like that would be my sign of like, oh you yeah, didn't kiss you me. didn't kiss me? I have to call you right, right now. now. Right? You took care of my drunk ass and didn't kiss me? That's, like, men don't do that. Men are always... Because then you also have Cameron pulling the, right, like, the, the, I did all of this for you, why don't you like the, me? The juxtaposition scene, right, where we get the two... The two people, you know, uh, uh, Kat and Heath Ledger, whose character name I'm just never gonna use. <laughs> um, he will... I feel like this is a quintessential Heath Ledger moment. Um, so, Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger are in the car, and they have that whole scene where... Things are misfiring, but everyone's intentions are more or less good. Right. Cut to Bianca and Cameron in the car, and they end up making out, but only because everyone's intentions are bad and everyone is manipulating each other. Yeah. He gives her the whole, like, friend zone, I've put enough coins in the sex slot now and you should have sex with me speech. And because she doesn't want to give up his attention, she just kisses him, hoping that she can just manipulate her way out of the situation. Yeah. And I think it's a really good way to show that, like, 
it's not an end justifies the means situation Absolutely. when it comes to sex. There are plenty of things in regards to your life that it doesn't, you know, the acquiring of them is is less important so long as you have them. Right. But sex is not one of those Absolutely. things. Like, it is important to, like, you know, move about these things with some care, especially when you are a teenager. Right. And again, I think if that was illustrated in a little bit better light and could be shown that like maybe like because like the whole scene between Bianca and Cameron is like skewed as oh it's so romantic because he finally like gets the girl I I think it's yeah I think it's supposed to but I can't read it that way I can't read it that way either but like it's also not called out as these two are manipulating each other. Right. Like right. Bianca's it's maybe subtle. Right. Yeah. Bianca's pretty privilege doesn't even like get called out that much. And yeah. she manip Bianca is a master manipulator. And again, what you learn from when you have overprotective parents, um, and using her like beauty and her innocence as a as a weapon against right. w- those so she can get what she wants yeah i also think i have another thing in my notes that like in the view of this movie those scenes mark bianca as being more traditionally successful than her sister absolutely which is sort of the thrust of this whole movie is like yes you can be a cat and be defiant and be shrewish but it's you know probably not gonna get you as far um, which is also kind of gross. But again, it recognizes that success and then points out how ultimately hollow it is. Yes. Right? It's like, yes, this is a thing, but like, I don't, I mean, I guess she does end up with Cameron in the end and they like have a whole romantic thing, but it's impossible for me to read this relationship as anything other than like mutual yeah. manipulation. Yeah. Although there's which, the. Which, I mean. Look, I was in high school once. I had some mutually manipulative relationships. <laughs> We've all been there. I just think you have to call this stuff out when you, like, I don't know. I feel like the fact that we have two, like, totally opposed readings of this yeah. means that this movie needs to be clearer about what its real intention is. Absolutely. Two divergent thoughts that have to do with this. One... As toxic and disgusting as Cameron and Bianca's relationship is and their story arc, there's this cute little scene where Cameron and Michael are getting ready for the party and Cameron is just going off about something stupid Bianca said and it's supposed to be a bit about him just being like a total simp over her. But it's showing that he took the time to take interest in her interests, right. learned, listened, and could communicate and have a conversation about something that she was interested in, right. which is key. That's yeah. what a relationship should be made out of. Right. And yeah, it sucks that like one of the few like genuinely kind of beautiful touching relationships in this movie is played for a joke because it's supposed to be like, ha ha, look how... Look how emasculine he is. Right. Because he actually cares about the things that his girlfriend says. Like, right. what a fucking dork. We all know we don't care about the things women say. <laughs> of course not. My other thought is, again, like, where there are little holes. And I think the motivation behind some characters' actions are left to questioning. Is Patrick's caving point when Joey is offering him money to take Kat to prom. Because, like, 
Joey just like ups the money until it's about like $300. And this is after Heath Ledger is obviously starting to like Kat. They're having a relationship. Like they're starting to get to know each other. And he takes the money and there's no motivation behind it. Yeah. Yeah. This, like we need a better explanation for why he needs this money so bad because without it, it makes him un- unsympathetic. Like, it makes him seem like kind of a sociopath. Like, if we, like, if this were, you know, the craft and we had a shot of him going back to his broken down trailer. Right. And whatever, whatever. Like, where they had just turned the power off. Okay, well then when he's offered $300, that's, like, that's a fucking whole month's rent or right. electric payment or whatever. But we don't have any of that, and so it just makes him seem like a monster. This boy bought a brand new guitar and a A Fender Stratocaster, by the way. So, like, he's got money, right? Because the the grand total of money he's made from Joey throughout this movie cannot exceed six hundred dollars. No, like maybe eight hundred dollars. That is spoiler. That is no, not enough like to buy because a Fender Strat. No, and it's just like you are being paid to emotionally manipulate someone yeah. who you seem to care about, right? Because because yeah, yeah. We need a better motivation for sure. Because yeah, it just makes him seem like a monster. And then again, it's one of those situations where. Just talk to each other. Right? Just have a conversation. Just be like, hey, I started doing this thing and I know it's really shitty, but I, that, fell, for I fell for you and I would like to give you the money or buy you something with the money or I'll give back the money. Like, I don't care. I just don't want to be in this lie anymore. Or Bianca and Kat can talk and Bianca can go, hey, this is really important to me. Can we come up with a system so you can help me work this out? Right. Or Kat can Instead go... Instead of having to manipulate Kat into also dating so that she can date. Right. But I think this all kind of ties back to this whole issue with rom-coms that we as a society have decided that these moments of manipulation and are what's romantic. And because, right. like, you have the whole idea behind these big gestures, like, right. like the singing in the stadium right. scene, where if you broke it, if you break it down, and you think about it, if it happened to you in real life, it is terrifying. It's and it's just emotional manipulation. Right. It's just I'm making myself vulnerable in front of all these people. Wouldn't you feel bad to make it worse right now? Right. Not only do you have that, you have. Cat telling him no how many fucking times and him stalking her. You have a total invasion of privacy of them going through her room without her knowledge. And you have this like persistent bullshit. I'm going to wear you down until you like me. Right. Because I think it, I think it stems from this toxic idea that like men and women people or you know folks who are in relationship with each other i guess i shouldn't say that because this does not happen in gay land like men and women just speak different languages like they're just not capable of communicating to each other you just can't tell your partner how you feel you just can't tell them this stuff like they just won't 
get it. And it's just not fucking true. No, like, I'm here it's to not. tell you from gay land where we all talk about all our feelings all the fucking time like it's totally possible and i promise your partner will understand you just have to actually tell them yeah i definitely feels like it's a straight culture thing where yeah. like you are like it's... when people get possessive over their exes we could not do that <laughs> we share our exes all the time <laughs> yeah. oh you should date my ex you, you would love so them cute together <laughs> but like this whole idea And I think this is, like, this is something that really stuck with me when I was a teenager and I was assumed straight of this, like, it's a game against the other sex. Like, it is a... Right. It is all about the tactics you use to trick them into liking you. Yeah. And... I I definitely remember receiving that message through the culture, too. And it's a very toxic message. Right. It's awful. Especially when it paints you know, women as, like, the passive receivers of this game and men as the ones doing all the manipulating. Like, it's fucking gross. And it does, and there's, like, this other part of it that is really hard to explain of, like, when you don't receive those attempts and, like, trickery, like, it does a lot of damage to your psyche because, like, as someone who, like, one, I... (laughs) I was that lucky kid who, when someone asked me out as a joke a few times, and that fucking sucks. Yeah. But two, like, there's this gross part of misogyny where you have this such internalized bullshit that the fact that your friend gets catcalled and you don't, you think there's something wrong with right, you. Right, right. That, like, if you aren't getting emotionally manipulated by people. There is something wrong with you and you are not desirable enough. Because the only ways that the society has taught you to value yourself is in the reflections of other people. Right. And the only way that other, we've taught other people to reflect those things is in a toxic way. So it's necessarily like a toxic cycle. Right. Yeah. It's, Rom-coms do as much, like, fun sleepover material as there is. It, they do such damage to... For sure. ...dating culture and to, I think, a lot of straight people culture that, like, really just keeps adding this toxic bullshit to the swirling smegma of straightness. Gross. <laughs> this movie has... A notable lack of gay people. That was one of my notes. Okay, cool. Like, we were talking about this uh, just before we started recording, and, like, it's 1999. Like, Clueless, five years before this, has a gay character. Will and Grace is on TV. It's on its second season at this point. Like, gay people exist in media. It is a choice not to have a gay character in here. You are in Seattle surrounded by riot girl music and like there is gonna be there is that there is that club skunk scene where it's like sort of full of it's full of women but it's never just like spoken of as a lesbian club and you like get you have that you get the impression that that's what it is but it's never said no and like the that impression that you have is like a tracking shot of like heath ledger walking in and just like the weird looks he gets right which like also, I no. That's not a thing in lesbian no! bars. I promise you, as a person who has throughout various points in her transition gone to various kinds of bars, 
the only place you get those looks is in cis male gay bars. Yeah. And it's only if you're not a cis gay male. And they can fucking tell. I promise you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And especially with a pretty boy like Heath Ledger comes into that. Like, I don't give a shit. No. Welcome to the gay bar, Hello. friend. We assume you're here with some friends. Yeah. It's, yeah, the whole lack of queerness in this movie. It's really, it's is really, really disappointing because, like, it is, you have these characters that, like, my gaydar goes off all this whole fucking movie. <laughs> like, they're, they're so close. It is, like, right there. Yeah. And you could have had one of these fucking iconic moments and really done a lot of good for the culture. Well, like, make the nerd sidekick character. Right. Michael totally could have been gay. Michael can be gay. Like, he loses nothing. It's literally the same story. Just make his love interest. Swat the gender of his love interest. Doesn't matter. Uh, And the story's exactly the same. And they still have a beautiful scene at prom at the end. Because they get to actually go to fucking prom together. Right. A thing that a lot of kids at my high school didn't get to do. Yeah. There are... Like, not even background gays. Right. Like, there were a few times where I stopped the movie and like, ooh, queer couple. No. Just short haircuts. Yeah. And it's just like... Just a man with long hair. <laughs> which, it's just like, it's heartbreaking. It's, it really because sucks. Because it's so deliberate. And it, like, it's to the point where, like, it has to be deliberate. Right. right. And having... And it's just such a, like, gross boomer idea of, like sexual orientation where like we're just not allowed to like we can make reference around it but we're never gonna bring it up we're never gonna depict it and if you do you are gross yeah for bringing it up it's because they have this skewed like thought process of sexuality means sex Right. Like, you can't talk about it without it being inherently sexual. Right. Which, like, this movie is also rated PG-13 and cites sexual content. And there's no sexual content. There's nothing. It's talk of sex. And it just feels very, like, prudish and, like, yeah. washed over. And, like, it's really disappointing to see something that, like, was is so groundbreaking in the character side of things to fall so short. Yeah. Yeah. It's disappointing. Again, if you talked about sex, maybe your kids wouldn't be scared of getting them pregnant all the time. Right. And like, maybe if we depict gay people in things, having perfectly functional lives, it isn't going to be scary to come out and be a gay person because you will have schema as to how to do that. Right. You can come out and know that your life can be okay. It can be a life. Right. And you're not going to be demonized and chased out and end in tragedy no matter what you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really gross. And I... It just makes me sad. Yeah. It's just... It's sad because it, it's like... It's so close. It's so close. It's so close. One of the last things, like, we like to talk about in these movies, we like to talk about how um, these movies do or don't address uh, race and class and privilege Mm -hmm. of various kinds. I think because we found, specifically because we found so many of these movies come from such a privileged place, 
and either are so blissfully unaware of it or are making some half-hearted feint at it that they think is helping when actually it's making it worse. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Dirty Dancing. Yeah. Yeah, this whole movie, like... This movie sort of falls into that first category yeah. of, like, pretending privilege isn't real. Yeah. Like, this whole movie reeks of privilege. Well, and it sort of is the philosophy of, like, well, if everyone's privileged, no one is. Right. And that's not... That's, that's not, not real. <laughs> no, and again... Just because you grew up in the suburbs doesn't mean that poverty's not real, just because you didn't go to school with it. And again, like, our only depiction of otherness out of this privileged world is when... Cat's father is demonizing a child that is supposedly like they you assume that she's on drugs or like right. going through some trauma and it's just like like it's such a Seattle look at privilege right. of that whole like if we ignore it and if we don't talk about it we'll just pretend everyone is doing okay and like poverty and and lack of privilege is only used as a stick to scare rich people into staying rich and powerful right and it's always that person's fault they're not working hard enough right. they're not battling their addiction hard enough right. they're not you know whatever is isn't a systemic problem designed no. to disenfranchise like non-white and non-rich people anyway yeah the very last thing that i oh other than saying i i'm gonna blow your mind really fast you ready yeah this movie released on the exact same day as the matrix are you mad <laughs> did i make you mad you're just staring at me are you mad <laughs> uh, i was not like i know you said you were gonna blow my mind but <laughs> i asked you if you were ready i, I didn't I just came time across, is weird. Yeah, time is weird. Oh, I don't like that. Doesn't it seem like they're like 10 years apart? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they came out on the same day. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. Oh, 1999. But um, the last thing that I, I want to talk, I want to leave us on is sort of a double question. And this might be how we start ending these from now on is um, what impression could a young girl get from this movie and what impression should a young girl get from this movie? Something that I think this movie depicts in a really good way and I think is a good impression to get from this movie is that it's okay to grow, that you have the ability to survive embarrassment, to survive um, all of these like, of being able to survive being called out on your bullshit. Right. And if you take that chance to learn and grow, you can be okay and you can do better. I think another impression that this movie, at least I took away from this movie, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, is that being yourself is just as powerful as conforming to the masses as someone who struggled and felt othered through most of my childhood. Having a main character like Kat who spoke her mind, who fought for what she believed in and who went against the grain and have her still win a boy over and still have this ability to like have a happy ending was revolutionary. I really hope that people who watch this movie can still get that, even though there's a lot of issues with it nowadays. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like as a, as a kid who 
was very much Kat, who was incapable of not speaking her mind, was incapable of not being the, you know, weirdo that I am. Like, it is interesting from the other perspective to see a Bianca character who, sure, she conforms and, like, she does sort of what people expect of her, but, like, she says, like, I like people liking me like there's nothing wrong with wanting to be liked no there's nothing wrong with wanting your life to be easy yeah like she's not a worse person for that no there's just different approaches absolutely and i think i think bianca's growth overall is one of my favorite things about this movie because like definitely as someone who I craved to be Bianca my, most of my childhood. <laughs> like, I just wanted people to like me, and I just wanted people to understand me, and I wanted to fit in. And to see her realize that she's not happy there, and that it's very hollow and shallow, and that she is happier when she gets to be herself, and she has a little bit more uniqueness, was really eye-opening. And I think is really important to show people totally but again it was also the positive of like you can do this like it's okay yeah you're allowed to you're allowed to try you're, you're allowed, allowed to, try. to just do stuff right Even if you don't think you're gonna be good or you don't think you're gonna succeed or you don't think people are gonna like you for it like that's what being a teenager is about right we also don't tell people that being high femme is okay like yeah like so many femme people get called out for being high maintenance and like too much because they try. Right. And I think that having the permission to try, no matter what you're trying, yeah. is so important. I definitely needed that permission for a long time. I still need that permission. <laughs> That's real. 